to another edition of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast. I'm your host, Zach Schmall. The Five Things I Read This Week podcast is a branch of EnteringThePublicSquare.com, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. And you know, it's kind of funny. I posted on my Facebook earlier this week that I had a lot of articles to choose from this week. I found a lot of things that I wanted to talk about with you. But, I mean, I held this the five things I read this week podcast. So I had to narrow it down to five. Um, I hope you like them. But it was a great week for writing. There were many excellent articles across the entire spectrum of websites I read. So let's dive right in, shall we? The uh, first one I actually received in my Medium newsletter I receive every day. It was published back on October 3rd, so it's a little more than a week old. It was written by a man named Charlie Hohen, H-O-E-H-N, Hohen. And it's called Thoughts on Vegas and Why Men Keep Doing This. I haven't talked a lot about Vegas because you can hear that everywhere. It's on the news all the time. There's a lot of commentary out there. I'm not the most knowledgeable source on any of the issues around Vegas. There are better people for that. However, this article stood out to me because Hone also talks about how he isn't writing a post about guns. He's not trying to defend the shooter. He's not trying to make him sound like a victim of circumstances or anything like that, but rather he's enthusiastic about mental health. He likes to learn about mental health. And he wants to understand what would drive someone to do something so horrendous and so unjustified. Why would someone commit such an atrocity. And the conclusion that Hone comes out with, or one of the possibilities that might explain this, is a weakness in men's mental and emotional health, which isn't something we talk about a lot. But he breaks it down into a few main points. Point number one, that men in the United States are chronically lonely. And this basically talks about how men don't really have friends. They don't have guys they can talk to, they can confide in. They can talk about deeper personal issues. He talks about this ideal, and, you know, I've seen this. Real men do everything on their own. Real men don't cry. Real men express anger through violence, kind of that stereotypical masculine image. And unfortunately, this leads a lot of men into isolation. Um, Because we don't need anybody else, we're fine on our own, we don't need to talk to anyone else, so we just hold it all in. Unfortunately, that's incredibly unhealthy emotionally. Um, Hohen writes, many men spend the majority of their adult lives without deeper friendships or any real sense of community, not to mention the complete inability to release anger or sadness in a healthy way. 
Now, first of all, I think this is a shame. I do think it's largely true, given the image of masculinity that our contemporary American culture puts on us. I will say that Christianity presents a much different image where we are actually encouraged to support our brothers and sisters. The church is a family where we come alongside each other and hold each other up. So these issues of real men do everything on their own, you know, there's time for the support of friends around you. And the church recognizes that in a way that I don't know that people outside the church have a similar type of support system unless they find it in other ways. But the church is a major um, source of actually helping men. But we have this first point that men are emotionally unhealthy. Number two, it talks about men being deprived of play opportunities. And this may sound a bit ridiculous. He even leads off of that. You might be offended by the suggestion. How could this guy talk about play after a shooting? Play is for kids. But he talks about how play, it's actually how we form these bonds and these friendships. Uh, we get to know people when we have fun with them. We release our stress, we get to be creative, we bond over this. Hone writes, it's how we communicate, I am safe to be around, I am not a threat. Play is how we form connections with other humans. So again, it's this isolation factor. Men don't have time to go enjoy, or just being with other guys. Or women, for that matter. It doesn't even have to be other men, but these connections are developed through these play opportunities. Now, what's play to me and what's play to you might be different. I love to play power wheelchair soccer. You might love to go to the opera. You might love something entirely different. But the point is you have these recreational opportunities where you actually release stress and you get to have fun. And you avoid the isolation, which is problem number one. So you can see kind of a crisis building up together. And as a result, these guys don't really feel good about themselves. They're ashamed because, oh man, I, I, I can't make it on my own. I'm, I, I must not be an adequate man. I must not be able to, you know, I... I I don't want to break down and talk to someone because, you know, real men don't do that. Oh, no, I feel like I have to do that. Now I'm ashamed. And now I tell my friends it's a, it's a cycle. And so we have this culture where men and boys have these seemingly natural urges to want companionship, want friendship want to enjoy life around them with other people. After all, we are social creatures. I think we forget that sometimes. Oh, I'm fine. I can do it on my own. I'm free to do whatever I want, say whatever I want, and you know what? I don't need anyone else. Quite frankly, that's wrong. That's not how we're designed. And that's, I think, what's really important about this article, written by Charlie Hone and Medium on October 3rd, 
and specifically on Be Yourself, which apparently is his uh, channel, if you will. But, and he does acknowledge right at the end, are there other factors at play here? Absolutely. Mass shootings are complex, and so are people. They don't fit perfectly into our narratives. Do the above three factors always lead to murderous behavior? Of course not. But over time, they destroy an individual's emotional health. And that's the point. It, that is the point. And that's what stands out to me. If we have a toxic culture, unfortunately, evil things are bound to happen. Toxicity can come from a variety of sources. But this was a great insight that, I guess because I'm a guy, I thought about a lot and how much I value the friends I do have and the connections I have on a deeper level with people, largely, in my Christian community. But I realize some people don't have that, and obviously not everyone's going to be a crazy murderer. That doesn't happen, but we need to be aware that, well, half of our population deals with these issues, and women probably have their own set of conditions that are toxic for them. I I don't know, but the point is we need to be careful. People are fragile, they're emotional, and we really need to value our brothers and sisters because if we don't, there, there are problems. And unfortunately, we saw that in Vegas. We don't know all the circumstances yet, but it's a terrible thing, and we really don't want to see that happen again. So I know I went on for a while about this article, but it's excellent. And my next article actually branches right into that somewhat. It was from Vox, and it was written by Aja Romano on October 10th. And this is something I don't know a lot about. You might have to fill me in on some of the nuances, but the issue is about Szechuan sauce. The article is called What Rick and Morty Fans Meltdown Over McDonald's Szechuan Sauce Says About Geek Culture. So I don't watch Rick and Morty. You might watch it and know a lot more about this than I do, but apparently there was an episode that referenced McDonald's Szechuan Sauce, which was a short-term promotional sauce way back when Mulan was released. Um, but then McDonald's didn't have nearly enough of this sauce People were waiting in line, and then the people freaked out because there wasn't enough. People went off the deep end because they didn't know how to handle that. Oh, man, I did not get some sauce. Now, this makes them kind of funny. I think it's a bit ridiculous. But this ties into that last article about this masculine culture. Apparently, here's an, a quote from the article. Many of the Rick and Morty fans who threw a fit over not receiving packets of Szechuan sauce, are part of the same male-dominated geek subcultures that have systematically harassed women, denigrated women's fandom hobbies, and or demonized feminism as made up of women who are overly sensitive. So, think about it. We have these guys, and again, I'm not trying to stereotype a lot here, but this geek culture of these guys who are engaged in these kind of online harassing activities of women, they're probably kind of isolated or else they shouldn't have free time to spend harassing people online. 
must not be a lot going on in their lives. They don't really value other people very much. Clearly, they find their identity in this subculture of men, but it's not a healthy male community. See, that's the difference, and that's really where we need to remember as Christians our witness is to help create cultures where men can be men in the supportive environment, women can be women in the supportive environment where they actually value. We don't want to end up like this culture where people are kind of wrapped up in this macho kind of anti-woman rough violent subculture that really uh, just blows up. It's Another quote from this article, it has undeniably gotten more difficult in recent years to detangle modern geek culture and fandom from the toxic substrands of nihilism, entitlement, trolling, misogyny, and and often the general lack of empathy, empathy, sorry, that fuels its darkest corners. Now, I mean, look at this. This is masculinity at its worst. Now, obviously, they're not murdering people over sexual incest. But you watch the videos, and honestly, it's pretty ridiculous that people are freaking out over dipping sauce. I mean, I I love I hear dipping sauce as much as the next guy, but I'm not going to go freak out at McDonald's over it. The fact that these men are doing that tells me there's something fundamentally wrong with our male subculture, and again, I have a lot of great male friendships within church circles. And I think it's because the church actually presents a model of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. That language isn't accidental. It's because we see ourselves as members of one family. And we see ourselves as coming together for the betterment of not only ourselves, but also our community. We support each other. Now, perhaps you think I'm being a bit, you know, rose-colored glasses here. Maybe I'm idealizing. I'm sure I am. Obviously, the church is not a perfect place. That would be ridiculous for me to say it is. But I do think we aspire to something higher. And that will really give us an edge. When we see these ridiculous constructs of masculinity in the world, that maybe we can present something better. And also femininity, too. But these two other holes, and again, me being a guy, I know a little bit more about male emotions. So, this article was on Vox again on October 10th. What Rick and Morty fans meltdown over McDonald's? Szechuan sauce says about geek culture. Pretty ridiculous if you ask me. But I think you'll like that one. Speaking of ridiculous, I have an article for you from The Federalist, written by Amelia Hamilton also, on October 10th. Millennials are so terrified of religion, they're developing one around Harry Potter. <sighs> yeah, I mean, a book that's knowingly fiction, that doesn't even pretend to be sacred, you know, that might be a good candidate to turn into a divine work. Uh, two graduates from Harvard Divinity School 
Casper Kerkuli and Vanessa Zoltan began a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts. Basically, the podcast encourages people to have Bible study-type meetings to talk about the meaning of Harry Potter. Um, yeah. So, Zoltan writes a little later in the article, To me, the goal of treating the text as sacred is that we can learn to treat each other as sacred. If you can learn to love these characters, to love Draco Malfoy, then you can learn to love the husband you haven't spoken to for 30 years. Then, the refugee down the street. So, the goal of treating the text as sacred is that we can learn to teach or to treat each other as sacred. Okay, this is basically at odds with every religion in the world. The reason I treat another human being as sacred is because I believe they're created in the image of God and they have inherent value as creatures in that form. The reason Harry Potter is not sacred is because it's not created in the image of God. It's not divinely inspired. It was written by a human who might have written a great series. I, I'm not arguing whether you love Harry Potter or hate it. That's not the point here. The point is, it's a false equivalency to say, oh, well, if we treat a text as sacred, then maybe we'll treat other people sacredly. No, there's a fundamental disconnect between what a human being is and what a book is. It's a comparison that just doesn't hold up. And this kind of hums, obviously, in a movement where people are drifting away from traditional religion. It's no secret that millennials aren't really big on organized religion. They'll say I'm spiritual but not religious. Um, and the author, Hamilton, she also mentions that people don't really like tradition or commitment. So they're not going to commit to a religion because, oh no, I don't want to do that. And they're not really big on tradition. So, ah, oh, this seems kind of interesting. It's different than my parents' religion. I'm just going to learn from Harry Potter and the wisdom of J.K. Rowling. The problem is, it's a book. A good book or bad book, I, I don't really hear your opinion on it. But it certainly, if we're making the argument that Harry Potter is a holy book of any sort, or that it's sacred, that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to absolutely be sacred. And the standard of being sacred is pretty low. Honestly, there are hundreds of books that should be considered sacred before we even talk about Harry Potter being sacred. So, yeah, let's just think about this. We're, we're Christians, we're interacting in society, and we come up to someone who says, you know what, I'm a believer in Harry Potter. How do we respond to that? What's the first thing we say? I think the first question we have to ask is, well, what, what makes that book sacred? And see how they respond. I, I really don't think they have an answer for it, but we can begin deconstructing 
this type of ideology right from the get-go. Because there's no reason for Harry Potter to be sacred. But these two, Casper K. Crowley and Vanessa Zoltan, have a much more popular podcast than I do. And they're getting pretty famous off of this, so they're pretty happy, probably, to consider Harry Potter as sacred. Um, but, you know, that's not what we're called to do. We have a message of hope. We need to communicate that. And if anybody is saying, well, I don't need religion because I have Harry Potter, I think we have to deconstruct that right from the get-go. Simply start by asking them, why is it sacred? They probably don't have a reason. And we can go from there. We can show them a better way. So again, this article, it was in The Federalist, written by Amelia Hamilton on October 10, 2017, entitled, Millennials are so terrified of religion, they're developing one around Harry Potter. Now, we're going to move to something much more positive and much cooler, in my opinion. It was written by Brett McCracken on the Gospel Coalition on October 12, 2017. In a divided culture, church singing can unite and invite. Now, just to preface this entire discussion, I'm not musical at all. I like to sing. I like music. I'm not musical. So, it's kind of nice to say it, church, because I'm one of the crowd, and if I don't sing well, that's not what I'm there for. A, a great quote right here in the beginning of this article. Amid the discordant chorus of voices in our fragmented culture, shouting to be heard and yelling at one another on social media, the church's voice and sound altogether different. Not shouting at one another, but singing to our Savior. Not discordant, but with one voice. Not for our own grandstanding, but for God's glory. And, you know, I know that some people have the perception that, you know, church, oh, well, you just go there to listen to the pastor preach. And that's a major part of it. We are there to hear the word of God open to us. At the same time, the music is significant. And it's significant because we are a group of people and we're there for a purpose, not for our own. We're there to praise God. And this article goes on to talk about 60 Christian songwriters who gathered for this conference, if you will, where they recorded a live album of 13 new hymns. And they're from a variety of denominations pastors, writers, and scholars. And they got together on this important um, mission because music unites people. Music brings people together. And if we worship as a corporate body in one voice, even though we're all different, isn't that an image of how we're supposed to live our lives? Every day as Christians, we come together with our brothers and sisters for a shared mission. It's easy to sing a song with someone else. That's not hard. It's a little bit harder for me to 
love my neighbor as I love myself. But you know what? If I can sit by them in church, I can sing with them. And then, if I can sing with them, maybe I can work with them. And I can love them. And that's important. That's what we are called to do. It's not overly hard to conceptualize. It's hard to practice. And there's a, a quote a little bit later in the article that says, Music has this amazing harmonious effect where it's possible to have a 60-year-old white lady play organ and a young African-American woman sing at the same time. And the Chinese college student can play violin. And they're all doing it together. And it keeps getting better the more who join in. Man, isn't that a beautiful picture of our Christianity? We, we can even get more beautiful the more we come together. And the more we combine forces and try to advance the mission of Jesus Christ and spread the gospel, it gets even more beautiful the more we actually work. When we sing, it is a battle cry for hope, for the wounded, for the weary, for the lost. Our songs are the public manifesto of what we believe. That's from later in the article. But that just about sums it up. We bring forth music. It's a demonstration to the world that you know what, we're different, but we come together. And we're not having together to perform for you. We're having together to worship God, and that's what we're about. So, and this is an excellent article. I'd recommend it, of course, like all of them. It's from the Gospel Coalition, written by Brett McCracken, on October 12, 2017, entitled, In a Divided Culture, Church Singing Can Unite and Invite. And finally, Article 5. Dun, dun, dun. It's from the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, written by Elise Daniel on October 6, 2017, how f the fear of uncertainty leads to a loss of freedom. And I mentioned this article because on entering the public square this week, I wrote a lot about freedom and this idea that Laws don't restrict our freedom, but we make choices to restrict our freedom, and laws don't even bring consequences. We bring the consequences on ourselves. We know what they are, and certainly the law kind of determines the scope of the consequences, but those consequences would never be realized if we didn't exercise our freedom in the first place to find ourselves in a situation where we experience the consequence. So this article takes freedom and it actually puts it in a slightly different light. It talks about how we really don't like uncertainty and that's entirely true. I, I don't like to be uncertain. I like to plan. I like to know what I'm doing tomorrow night. I like to know what I'm doing next Saturday night. We don't really want a lot of surprises because then we don't know how we're going to handle it. Unfortunately, sometimes, as the author points out, trying to control uncertainty can make it worse. We, we try, but the more and more we plan, 
sometimes it just blows up in our face. And that then leads us back to this point where maybe we'll have to be content with some uncertainty. And uh, Daniel writes, the control felt good in the moment, but over time I came to realize how little control I actually had over certain situations. I saw many of my plans foil, and those things that I tried so desperately to control had spun out of control. I quickly learned that I wasn't always the one with the best knowledge, and I had to quit acting like it. I was thinking about this because next week on my website, I'm talking about how freedom has responsibility, but who determines those responsibilities? Who makes the decision that my freedom should be kind of restrained in certain ways? And even if it's not by law, there are social conventions that we follow. So who, how does that come to be? And why do we even listen to them in the first place? Now, if, if I'm free to do what I want, but I'm afraid of uncertainty, and sometimes I use my freedom in such a way that I end up with bad consequences. Well, maybe, like the author suggests, God calls us to plan and prepare, but at the same time, he calls us to surrender and fall to him during both certain and uncertain times. Maybe that's the bottom line. I am free. I can do what I want. I'm free to plan. I'm free to not plan. And God gives us guidelines that preparation is good. Proverbs is full of that kind of advice. But at the same time, I need to realize that it, it, some things just aren't mine to deal with. And I can't always predict in this imperfect world what's going to happen to me. So rather than maybe panic about all the plans I have and what might go wrong or what might go right, maybe I should just surrender control to God and let him bear that burden, then I have true freedom. I'm not panicked about what may be or may not be. I'll actually have freedom. And that's a good thing. I personally want to be free. I like freedom, and I really want to be able to experience that in my life to the greatest degree possible. This was good advice to me. It made me think. It was written by Elise Daniel. It was on the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And it's entitled, How the Fear of Uncertainty Leads to a Loss of Freedom. Well, hey, that's five for five. I hope you've enjoyed this. There's, there's some good stuff this week. These articles are longer. They might take you a little while to read. But I really hope you do, because it's worth considering. There were some excellent thoughts from all these authors. And you know what? We're going to find some more excellent thoughts for next week. So I hope I'll see you again. And have a great week.